1981, a man by the name of the Bhagwan Rajneesh, who was a philosopher from India, he had a large following of people, uh, he came to the United States, he acquired property in eastern Oregon, 66,000 acres, 100 square miles where he was going to establish his cult, if you will. And it was a huge property, as I mentioned. They had housing. They were completely self-sufficient for the most part. But the claim that he made was that he had been enlightened when he was younger and that he had, you had to basically be with him to be enlightened. And so that's what this was based on. On the property, he had over 2,000 followers. He had many more thousands worldwide. And he promised them that he had the purpose of life. In reality, he was enticing people by making promises that he really couldn't fulfill. And he gained their trust, and then he just simply enforced it with some armed men that he had on the property. But so many people came of their free will. And you actually had to give your earthly possessions to him in order to be part of this cult. And it certainly was a cult in every sense of the word. Cult is a system of religious veneration and devotion directed towards a particular person or object. I have a few pictures of that's where it was located, if you're familiar with Oregon, right near Antelope, down in the lower right corner. And here's kind of some things that went on there. That is the property, part of the property, and all those little white buildings, those are just, those are tents where people lived in. And so people would come and give their wealth, it would become his possession, and then they would be living in these tents. And as he would come, that's a Rolls Royce, he had many nice, very nice cars, people would worship him as he drove to their place of meeting, which I think is in the next uh, photo here. Okay, that's just, yeah, at the top of the, pro top of the picture, that's their big meeting area. This is them getting in line, so hopefully they could shake his hand one by one. The Bhagwan Rajneesh property was certainly a very, very evil place. He had some commandments that they followed. I think you'll find them interesting for they're pretty familiar to any worldly view. One was never obey anyone's command unless it's coming from within you. There is no God other than life itself. Truth is within you. Do not search for it elsewhere. Pretty convenient when you're trying to Manipulate people to stay with you. Life is now and here. To become a nothingness is the door to truth. Nothingness, <laughs> nothingness itself, say that fast three times, is the means. It is the goal. In 1985, he was arrested on bioterrorism charges because he tried to take over a nearby community called the Dells and tried to get uh, the water poisoned going into that community because he wanted to take over that community. 
And essentially, after that, the cult disbanded. And he died later in 1990. But what would cause people to place their worth, their value, on another individual? I mean, you would think they would have to be pretty desperate, don't you think? I mean, and, and maybe, gosh, did all these people, were they, did they have not have very much? And were they just destitute and have no, you know, life just was, you had nothing to live for? No. Especially cults around the world draw all kinds of people, and this one drew very wealthy people, young professionals, doctors, lawyers, people of all kinds of backgrounds. The Rajneesh Ranch was certainly a very, very dark place. And this is just one example, uh, but there are literally thousands of cults. But their core, at their core, they're trying to provide the answer to a question. A question that every man and woman in all of history asks in some way or another. And that is, why am I here? What is my purpose? We all have a deep longing to have that answer. And so in order to gain an un, a better understanding of that, we're going to go back to the original time when someone first sought out to find their own purpose. And we find that in Genesis chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to kind of do a quick little Old Testament survey. What we have in the Old Testament is the beginning even before those words were spoken, God was complete in and of himself. But then he spoke the words. In the beginning, God created. And he created the universe. And he created the earth and the waters. And then he created man. And then he created woman. And it was good. And God and man, Adam and Eve, were in a relationship with one another. And he not only created them, but he provided everything that they needed to sustain life. And he not only provided for them, he gave them a purpose in terms of working, and he, he gave them the land that they would care for it. And they could go anywhere that they wanted. But there was the one limitation. At the center of the garden, there was a, a fruit tree. And you can ask, was God trying to trick Adam and Eve? No, God loved Adam and Eve. But what is love if we don't have the choice? And so that's what the fruit tree represented. It was a choice that Adam and Eve could make to believe God and who he was and to keep that relationship. And so refraining from eating the fruit tree was a way for them to express their trust and love for their creator. But by chapter 3, Adam and Eve want more. In fact, the serpent enters the picture and he starts asking questions and they start doubting God's intentions. God did not do anything different. They are seeking something else out. In verses 4 and 5, the serpent says this in reference to eating from the fruit tree. You will not surely die, 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, now knowing good and evil. Prior to this, they only knew good. They were in a right relationship with their creator. But they did eat of the tree, and so now they knew evil. But it's because of their action, not God's. And so this, folks, is what we call original sin. It is man deciding that he wants to be his own God, in charge of his own life. It is God's creation choosing to worship another part of God's creation rather than God himself. That is at the very, very core of sin. And so we were created to worship him, to place all of our worth on him. And so the rest of Genesis tells us the story of this relationship and this brokenness and uh, the rest of mankind follows suit. And man gets on this relentless pursuit, if you will, for looking for ways to now fill this void that he now has. To fill this void of this broken relationship. And the Old Testament records of how they worshipped the sun, they worshipped the moon, they worshipped the mountains, they worshipped the ocean, they worshipped other men, they worshipped other women, they worshipped the body, they worshipped the food. They worshipped the sky, the ground, and God sent judges and kings, and he sent prophets, and he sent priests, all in hopes of trying to communicate and get man back on track, back into that right relationship with his creator. And God even thought, well, I'm going to write it down for him. So we have the Ten Commandments. And it's not that it was follow the Ten Commandments and that's, that's how you get back right with me. It was this is a standard. But man couldn't even wait for that. While Noah, Moses is on the mountain getting that, they get impatient. And what do they do? They melt all their jewelry. They make a golden calf and they start worshiping it. And then after they do get the Ten Commandments, they either just continue, they continue to break them and their lives continue to fall apart or they start worshiping them, <laughs> yet still missing the relationship with their Creator. And so this pursuit even continues today. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So whether my turning away from God is done quietly in my heart alone or part of an organized group or cult, the result is the same. Separation from God. For in both instances, we're striving to find our purpose in someone or something other than God our creator. And we are all born with this. But God never gave up. One of my favorite books is a real small little book called We Would See Jesus by Roy and Ravel Hessian. And they 
reflect on this truth that I've been sharing this way. If an airplane designer designs a plane to fly at a certain altitude and finds it will not leave the ground, he will bend every effort to make that plane do that for which he designed it. So does God bend every effort to bring us back to himself. The Old Testament is very clear that not only did God not give up on us, but that he had a plan. And that leads us to our passage today out of John chapter 1. For it reveals God's plan. And although he had been silent for over 400 years by this point, time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, John 1, 1 through 18, describes for us how far God went to bring us back to himself, to be in a relationship with him. And so with that as a backdrop, let's look at John chapter 1. If you're not familiar with this book, John uh, was, a, he was, this is the Apostle John, and so he actually had a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, he spent a lot of time with him. He was there at the crucifixion, um, and he was also, he also personally saw Jesus after the resurrection. The purpose of the gospel is to show that Jesus is God in the flesh and that there is no one else. He is whom we are to put our trust. He does this by including seven of Jesus' miracles that demonstrate his deity. But John also includes encounters to show that Jesus was knowable, that he was personal, including the passage that we'll read today in terms of reflecting on who Jesus is. And so John 1, 1 through 18 was certainly good news for the readers in that day, and it's good news for us as well. So let's look at verse 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That word beginning is the same word as in Genesis. It's the same beginning. So in the beginning was the Word. It's a capital W, right? Did your, does your Bible have that? So there's something different about the Word. The Word is, uh, in Greek, is logos. It is the reason or thought within someone or the expression of their existence. In the beginning was the Word. And so to the Jew, Logos was the expression of God when he spoke the universe into existence. For the Jew, the Logos was the expression of God when he guided the prophets. And for the Jew, the Logos was the expression of God when he delivered his people from captivity. And so for God's people, the Logos was the way in which God had made himself known. And that was changing. That's what John is talking about here. He continues in verses 2 and 3, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. So it goes from the word to it's he. It now had they, he has an identity. Something different is going on here. The word is now referred to as a he. And in fact, verse 17 puts a name to the he, and that's Jesus. 
And Jesus was not only present at creation, but he participated in it. Which supports Genesis 1.26 that says, this is at the creation account, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Jesus was present at creation. In verse 4, John goes as far as to say that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Thankfully, you know, this kind of stuff is, okay, we're the created ones. Okay, we have finite minds and trying to wrap your mind around what is being said. I love it that John kind of at least gives us a, a metaphor here, this metaphor of light and darkness. Uh, for the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So you've got this light and darkness. Light represented um, order. It represented good. It was meant to bring into full view or to have an understanding. Christ, Jesus, is known as light, certainly in this passage and many times throughout Scripture. Darkness, on the other hand, represents evil, chaos, confusion, the unknown. Even Satan is referred to as darkness. And so I'm going to do a little experiment. If you have a child with you, Hold them close. I don't want to scare anyone. We're going to turn off the lights in just a second. Um, but I want to demonstrate what this feels like. So, okay, we're going to turn down the lights. Go ahead and do that. So now what I'd like you to do is everyone, I'd like you to stand up and walk to the other side of the room. No, don't. I can't see if you are or not, but don't. But no, as we have these lights off, Okay, imagine if you would have started to do that. You'd be bumping into each other, tripping, falling. You'd be wondering, well, where am I going? Do I have a destination? Is there a chair I'm going to? But yet, what we read in Scripture is that when there is a light, and that's what we end up looking for, we need some kind of frame of reference. You can turn the lights back on. If you were to do that, you would be looking for something. Now, I realize there was still a little bit of light up here, but you'd want to find something that was a frame of reference that would offer a truth about where you were. And so, this idea of living in darkness is very much the same way. It's living in a spiritual darkness. It's living in chaos we would, it is basically wandering around, looking for a purpose, desperate, spiritually in the dark, looking for some form of truth that we can get our bearings for our life. That's what it means to be in spiritual darkness. And depending on how desperate we are, we will believe in anything that gives us any kind of hope. Like we saw in the example of the Bhagwan Rajneesh. Those people were obviously in spiritual darkness and were looking for anything that could give them some kind of purpose, no matter how radical it seemed. 
Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt spiritually in the dark? Thankfully, God didn't leave us there. It's not simply that he sat back and waited for us to find him. That's not his character. He came to us. In the little example, it would be him coming to each one of you individually and saying, I'm here. Thankfully, he didn't leave us wandering around. Verses 6 through 8. Here, John speaks of a man, John the Baptist, which we're going to know, learn more about John. We're going to continue in this book of John, where we'll talk more about the John the Baptist. But here, John reflects on this one that is coming before Jesus. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This word witness is to give testimony. John is making it clear, this John the Baptist guy, he's not a light. (laughs) In that time, people were looking for a light. They were looking for any kind of hope. It had been 400 years since They'd heard from God. People were desperate, and he was making sure John the Baptist isn't the guy, but he's pointing to our God. In verse 11, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John wants his readers to know that uh, he's not talking about just any light or just any truth. Because once again, there were lots of those going around. There were lots of religious groups and people who, you know, could help you get whatever you needed, (laughs) but it really wasn't the truth. It wasn't the one true God. But Jesus was the true light, the physical expression of the invisible God. John is talking about something very, very radical for them at that time. Yet, the reality is, as he says, unfortunately, there are those in this world who will not recognize him as so. They won't see him as the light. And in fact, he even came to his own, referring to the Jews who in the Old Testament, God's people who would, were demonstrating God's goodness, even they didn't recognize that the Messiah, the one that they had been promised, they missed it that Jesus was him. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. This, folks, is the gospel. And if you get nothing else from today, I hope you understand this truth that is in verse 12. For the Jew, the person's name represented the essence of their character. So to believe in someone's name meant to believe every truth about who they were. 
It was a, it was a commitment. It was a dedication. And so to believe in his name literally means to believe in the truth of who Jesus is. John shares in verse 12 a simple yet profound, profound truth. It's a truth that the wisest of men often miss. It's a truth that is one step that no person can take for another. It's the truth that transforms a person from living in darkness to living in light. It's the words that instruct us how to be in a right relationship with our Creator. If Easter is in fact the most important day in history, as Larry mentioned last week, then what John shares in verse 12 is the most important decision that a person will make in their entire lives. This is about a spiritual birth and not of man, but of God. We're not born into it. We can't earn it. Our parents can't make the decision for us and we can't make it for our children. It's not the result at the end of our lives if the good outweighs the bad. It has nothing to do with that. It's about seeing Jesus for who he is. God in the flesh. That he died for our sins. That he rose from the dead. Demonstrating his ultimate power over Satan and spiritual darkness. And that we are going to forsake all other gods to worship him. That's what it means to believe on Jesus' name. And John continues. This is probably a more familiar verse even for you in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh. flesh. Jesus God incarnate is introduced here in John chapter 1. The message says it this way, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's exactly what he did. God, perfect in and of himself, chooses to become a man and walk through the messiness of our lives. Dwelt among us means literally to pitch a tent Okay, to, to take out a space and to actually pitch a tent. And tent means tabernacle. And you may recognize that word from Exodus chapter 40 when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. God was represented in the tabernacle. It was the tent of meeting. It was the place in which God dwelled for them. It's where his glory was. And glory this cloud of glory uh, literally means a visible expression of God's majesty. And so by moving into our neighborhood, God demonstrates how much he desires to be in a right relationship with us. He came to us. By becoming a man, he became personal and knowable. He's not an authoritarian ruler or judge who is ready to just pounce on us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He came in grace and truth. 
this is one of those that just really hit me this week as I was thinking about he's the truth. And so that means he knows the truth. He is the truth, and yet he knows all truth. Yep, that confuses me too. But the truth about me, he knows the truth about me. He knows the truth about my past. He knows the truth about every thought that I have, those things that no one else knows about, those things that cause me to go into shame. And yet he comes into that with grace. And he does that for every one of you. He didn't wait out there for us to find grace. It's actually what we're looking for. <laughs> but he came to us in grace and truth. Grace is unmerited favor. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it, and we can't buy it. God coming in the flesh. That is certainly good news. In verse 15, John speaks again of John the Baptist. He even quotes him. It says, John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. He wants to make sure there is no mistake. We're not going to have a little church called John the Baptist Church. <laughs> and John the Baptist wanted to make sure there wasn't a John the Baptist Church. The focus was to be on Jesus. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But he, Jesus, has made him known. Grace upon grace. Do you get the feeling John uh, wants to make sure we get the point here? Grace upon grace. Anytime there's repetition like that, we've got to pay attention to it in Scripture. And once again, keep in mind, in this day, there were religious leaders, there were very powerful religious leaders who had set up an order that people were to follow. And God uh, was not knowable. He was uh, more like a judge. And he had lots of rules for them to follow. They had to earn things spiritually. Yet verse 17 was a clear pronouncement that things were changing. For God had moved into the neighborhood his name was Jesus, and he was full of grace and truth. Things were changing. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's that look like in your life? Do you remember when you lived in darkness? And that moment when Jesus came in, when you acknowledged him as your personal Lord and Savior, and just that contrast of going from darkness to light. Let me show you a little bit what that looks like. Um, I told you the story about the Bhagwan Rajneesh. That property was later, uh, when he was arrested, the feds took the property over, and a man bought that property all 66,000 acres, 100, 100 square miles or so. But all he wanted was 
the many, many, many Rolls Royces that were on the property. So that gentleman takes those, and then a family bought it. Their last name is Washington, and uh, they donated the property to Young Life. And so here we see that's what the property looks like today. And so, you know, I'm not sure that's 66,000 acres. That's a lot of land. <laughs> but uh, talk about going from darkness to light. So this next picture, uh, that's the same picture, for, taken from the same spot, the first picture earlier where you saw all the tents. That's essentially where they were living. This is now a high school young life camp. And about a thousand kids and leaders can be there on a weekly basis where kids get to hear the gospel. They get to hear the good news about Jesus. One of Young Life's philosophies is their camps are top-notch. They're some of the best in the world. We want to show kids the greatest week of their life because we are talking about their creator who is crazy and extravagant and loves them and adores them. And so this next picture is this is actually the middle school property that is also there, holds 400 or so uh, kids and leaders. Um, once again, a place where people can go on retreat. Uh, during the summer, every single week, a whole new crew comes in and uh, kids get to hear the gospel. Uh, I wanted to show this next picture. That's the pool area, kind of focused in. Um, it is extravagant. Disney heard the story, and Disney Productions designed that for Young Life. They wanted to be a part of that. And this other picture I, I wanted to show, because that's how the property used to be used. Thousands of people who, this is actually the Bhagwan's wife, worshiping this, in this cult setting. But now God has that property. And these are kids cheering, singing songs like we're singing on Sunday. And they are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the good news. They're hearing the truth that they can go from darkness to light. This next picture is just uh, incredible. Uh, it doesn't look incredible. Those are, there's a couple concrete slabs there. That's where the Bogwan used to live. Those were where his homes were. And it just turns, turns out a friend of mine was living on the property soon after Young Life acquired the property. And they're in the middle of transforming it to be used as a you know, weekly thing for Young Life. And he called me and he says, hey, I just want to let you know you need to be praying. There's a fire nearby and we need to evacuate. So just pray that it doesn't, you know, we've done a lot of work here. And he calls me back three weeks later. I said, hey, how did it go? He says, well, the, essentially what he described to me was the fire moved right near the property and stopped. A little piece of the fire came down, consumed those two buildings, and then left. Yeah. Um, my son is working at the property. He's there for a year, and I called him the other day to, to, to ask him some of these questions just to get their authenticity and, um, and I asked him about that. I said, now, I remember this story. Is it true? He goes, yeah. Oh, yeah, we just call that the finger of God. Everyone knows that. I mean, it, okay. It, I mean, because he went and talked to his boss, and he goes, oh, yeah, we just call that the finger of God. And this last um, picture, um, 
Larry and I had the great privilege of being able to, um, when we were working for Young Life, to go for a month. And uh, Larry was the camp manager and I was the camp speaker. And so it was the first summer that Young Life was using this property to share the gospel. And so I was the camp speaker and little deal that often we'll do at the end of the camp for those kids that have met Christ, kind of take them on a new believers walk. Okay, and so we're walking around the lake and as we're walking, I said, pick up a rock. Okay, someone to talk about that. And essentially it was a story, this represents your sin and Jesus is taking our sin away. And at the end, I said, you know what? I want you just to take that rock and I want you to put it in a pile. That was in 1999. So the other day, I texted Austin. I said, hey, is the, is the pile still there? And that's what it looks like. Thousands and thousands of lives that have been changed because Christ came into the darkness of kids' lives. And there are lots of little pebbles in there, and they've had to reorganize it a lot of times because they had to do landscaping. But people who walk by that get that story, and they know this is a property that has gone from darkness to light. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. And so I'm not sure when you first believed in Jesus, but I hope this encourages you that seeing Jesus for who he is changes us. It's a game changer for us. And for some of you, maybe you haven't expressed what verse 12 talks about. Maybe you've never made that personal commitment to Christ. Would you consider that today? Have you seen Jesus today for who he is? And do you believe in that? That's what it means to follow Christ and to acknowledge that. The band's going to come up and just play one more song, and I'd like you to just consider that. If you have never made a commitment, do you believe on the name of Jesus, and have you expressed that in a prayer to him? And if you do, if you already know the Lord, then reflect on his goodness. And maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you're going through a hard time. I hope today gives you perspective. I hope you've seen Jesus this morning, because when we see him, that other stuff is taken care of. He loves us, will care for us, whatever it is that we're going through. So let's reflect a little bit.
Lord, thank you that your love is never ending. That you came to us. You didn't leave us in darkness, wandering in chaos, but you came in the form of Jesus. It's he whom we want to see. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you, if you did take a step today and acknowledge that chapter, that, that verse 12 that I talked about, we'd, it'd be really important for someone to know that. If you're here with a family member, friend, or want to come up and tell me or one of our staff, uh, we'd love just to help you in what that means. And uh, if you uh, need prayer, we've got prayer partners. Uh, if you want anything uh, just prayed for this week, we have a table back there, and we faithfully pray for those things. I want to end with another quote from We Would See Jesus, and I think it's appropriate for us as we leave here today. To create, God had but to speak, and it was done. But to redeem, he had to bleed. And he did so in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to take for us the place of death upon the cross which our sin had so richly deserved. I hope as a result of being here today, you've seen Jesus. Have a great week. Bye-bye.